and welcome to another episode of the Mother Kind podcast with me, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. This week I had the pleasure of chatting with the hilarious Claire Pooley, who is the author of The Sober Diaries, How One Woman Stopped Drinking and Started Living. So Claire started by writing a hugely popular blog called Mummy Was a Secret Drinker under the pseudonym of Sober Mummy. And through a series of events, which we talk about in the podcast, she came to write this book, The Sober Diaries. And if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it. It is a really funny, lighthearted, but incredibly emotional and poignant at the same time book about Claire's journey from excessive drinker into sobriety and there are some huge challenges that she faces along the way which we talk about in the book. I think that's when you realise that you've got a bit of a problem is when you can't stick to your own rules and the problem with that is you start hating yourself, you start feeling really, really inadequate. And for those of you that follow me on Instagram will know that I too don't drink. I have been sober for about four years now. So Claire and I talk about what it's like to raise children without wine to fall back on and how she's changed as a mother. Now I don't drink, I feel like I'm so much more on their level. I'm much more patient, I'm much more present and I'm a better example for them, I think, as well how the blog came about, how the book came about, and some of the other huge challenges that she's faced since being sober and how her life has changed as a result. So if you've ever thought about stopping drinking or cutting back drinking, then this is the episode for you. And I hope you enjoy it. And Claire's book, The Sober Diaries, is out now and I highly recommend you check it out. Here is the episode. So Claire, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. And I absolutely loved your book called The Sober Diaries, How One Woman Stopped Drinking and Started Living. Thank you. I thought it was just beautifully written to start with. And also you made a serious, quite dark subject quite funny. And I really appreciated that. <laughs> but that's sort of my attitude to life generally is, is I think it can't be made better by a bit of humour. <laughs> I wholeheartedly subscribe to that. <laughs> As someone who can take life a bit seriously, I need to keep remembering that. And can you just give a sort of three or four sentence overview for people that might not have come across the book? Sure. The whole thing started really almost exactly three years ago when I quit drinking, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about a bit more. Basically, I started drinking way too much. So I was drinking at the end of the day to relax and what was one glass of wine turned into two, turned into three, and I ended up drinking a bottle of wine a day, more at weekends, and it was messing up my life. So I stopped, but I was too ashamed to tell anyone, and nobody really knew that I had any issues. And because I felt I had to offload somehow and I had to talk to somebody about what I was going through, I started writing a blog. And it started off as therapy, really. It was just an online diary that helped me get my thoughts together. But more and more and more people found it, which is extraordinary because I wasn't publicising it at all. And actually, within a year, I had nearly a million hits. And I found thousands of people all over the world who were going through exactly what I was going through. 
And then, a bit of a spoiler alert here, but eight months into vlogging, I got breast cancer. So I wrote about that. And what was incredible is so many people around the world who I'd helped with drinking started helping me with the whole breast cancer thing, which was amazing. So, you know, people were praying for me all over the world, which just made things so much easier. And then after a year, lots of people started saying, you should turn this story into a book. And because I knew how it feels when you realize you have a problem and you feel so alone, I thought if I shared my story, it might help other people out there realize that they're not the only ones going through that sort of thing. So that's what I did. And that's how The Sober Diaries came about. It's the diary of that year where I quit drinking, got cancer, got over cancer, I'm fine now. <laughs> and there you go. So let's go back to the start of the journey. How did you know that something had to change? Was it one moment or was it like a sort of gradual building up to that moment? You know, I think people assume that if you quit drinking, there were some terrible rock bottom moments and, you know, that you ended up in somebody else's bed and or drunk in a gutter or something. And my drinking story wasn't like that, really. It was more a sort of creeping realisation that what I thought was my best friend, white wine, was actually my worst enemy. And I was two stone overweight. I was a terrible insomniac. I was anxious a lot of the time, which I thought the alcohol helped. And actually, I realise now that alcohol causes anxiety. And I was really stuck in a rut. And all of those things were because of the alcohol. And when I realised that it was starting to become a problem was when I tried to stop drinking as much as I was. So I realised I had to do something. So I thought, OK, I will only drink at weekends mm. or I will only drink when we go out, or I won't drink more than three nights a week. I'd set all these rules and I just couldn't stick to them. And I think that's when you realize that you've got a bit of a problem is when you can't stick to your own rules. And the problem with that is you start hating yourself. You start feeling really, really inadequate because you feel like everyone else can drink normally and you can't. And that's really soul-destroying. That's when I realised it was a problem, is when I couldn't keep a lid on it. And I think that's so important to highlight and talk about, because lots of people think or have this view of addicts and alcoholics as people who drink first thing in the morning, mm. who are on park benches. And actually, I think you're talking in the book about how it was that inability to stop and setting your own rules and not being able to stick to them. Because lots yes. of people do that, and that's quite common in... AM recovery, isn't it? People will talk about switching to just spirits or I'm only going to drink this time. <laughs> Somehow trying to control yeah, I it. I tried only doing beer. Did you? Okay, that's quite a common one. <laughs> because I thought that's not proper alcohol. Uh, but that didn't last very long either. The problem is that you can set all these rules, but as soon as you've had one or two drinks, your willpower goes completely out the window. And can you talk about that? Because you describe that brilliantly in the book around dopamine and the alcohol's effect on the brain. We forget alcohol is a drug and the problem is you need more and more over time, you need more and more of that drug to have the same impact. So that's why you, you, know, you start off just drinking one glass of wine in an evening and then you find it takes two for you to be able to relax and then it takes three to, for you to be able to relax. And as you say, alcohol causes your brain to release dopamine, which is a feel-good hormone. So it does make you feel great. But the problem is that 
because your brain is producing so much dopamine with the alcohol you're drinking, it decreases the amount of dopamine that it produces on a regular basis to compensate, which means that when you're not drinking, you feel more and more and more miserable, which is how alcohol creates depression and anxiety. It's a depressant, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So then you find that the only thing that makes you feel better is having that glass of wine because that gives you the dopamine hit again. But actually, it's the wine or whatever alcohol you're drinking that was causing that problem in the first place. So effectively, what you're taking as medicine is poisoning you. So what was it like then when you first put down your best friend, as you call it? Lots of people talk about recovery, you know, that flood of all the feelings and the things that you'd been numbing. Was that your experience? Yeah, it was actually. And initially I thought my life was over and I thought, okay, this is something I have to do, but life is never going to be fun again. (laughs) For anyone who's listening who has that fear... It's so not the case. You know, my life is so much better than it was back then. And in so many different ways, you know, I'm more energetic. I love mornings now. I lost two stone. I don't have that anxiety anymore. I sleep brilliantly and I'm a much better mum. It really has transformed my life. But to come back to your, your initial question, yes, initially I was terrified and then before you can reap all those benefits, you go through this process of having to get used to dealing with all the ups and downs of life without your prop. We all have props of different sorts. Mine was drink for other people. It might be sugar or shopping or exercise or whatever, but everybody has something they do when life gets tricky. And I lost mine. So one of the big things that you go through is finding other more healthy ways of dealing with Stress. So you get to wine o'clock at the end of the day and you think, okay, I need to find some way of relaxing and you have to find different things to do that don't involve booze or whatever. And you found a love of hot chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Hot chocolate and cake got me through quite a lot earlier on. But, you know, I found all sorts of things, you know, over time. Mm -hmm. So yoga, I I did a bit of, you know, meditation, long walks, hot baths, reading. But a big one for me was writing, Mm -hmm. writing the blog, listening to podcasts or, you know, like this one. There's all sorts of alternatives, but initially you feel lost. And I think you talk about it in the book. And, you know, I haven't drunk for four years, so I relate. Although I didn't have a problem, I just stopped gradually over time because it just wasn't giving anything to my life anymore Mm. it was a fear of mine and you talk about it a lot it's being perceived as boring yeah yeah I thought nobody would invite me to a party again (laughs) has it been the case (laughs) one or two people don't invite me to parties anymore but I think that says more about them than it does about me (laughs) that's what I learned as well is when people are judging me for not drinking you know no judgment back to them but it tends to be about their stuff yeah it does it does it makes some people feel uncomfortable and I think things are changing I think people are much more accepting of people not drinking and you know I don't judge other people drinking at all I mean I'm hardly one to judge myself I wish people wouldn't judge non-drinkers because there tends to be an assumption that we're going to be boring or we'll be judgmental or that you know we're just a bit odd and uh, I think things are changing but there's still a little bit of a stigma and do you have this because I've had this a few times where and I think you talk about it in the book my energy is rocketed since I stopped drinking Mm. so I can go to a party and out dance 
all the drinkers. Well, um, your feet hurt. It does, it does. Because if you're drinking and dancing, you don't notice that your feet are killing you. But if you're not drinking, you can only dance That's for a while really before true. you need your feet out. I often just kick my heels <laughs> off. I'm like, I'm just carrying on. Yeah, yeah. But what I notice is the next day I'll get messages from people asking me about what it was not drinking or have some curiosity about mm. seeing me in that party environment totally sober. Yeah. Have you experienced that? Have people yeah, sort of... there are more... People are becoming more interested in whether life is possible mm. without booze because, you know, it used to be very much a minority interest. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but there are... There's more understanding now that, you know, we spend so much time fretting about what we eat. And, you know, do you eat gluten? Do you eat eat dairy? Do you, you know, so on and so forth. And yet, you know, we quite happily drink toxins on a regular basis. And I think there are more and more people who are just thinking, actually, you know, maybe life without alcohol would be easier, more healthy, better. And yeah, so... I mean, I've definitely found that. I definitely have. There's nothing that's got worse in my life since I've stopped no, drinking. no. I mean, it takes a bit of adjustment, particularly if you were drinking as much as me. Yeah, I was in a bit, I was a bit different. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you were drinking as much as me, I mean, the, the time scale that, that a lot of people talk about is the difficult bit is the first 100 days. Yeah. And then after that, it starts getting easier. And so if you've given up for January, for instance... You've done the hardest bit without actually getting to the rewards. You know, the real rewards come after about 100 days when it starts getting easy to do and you start noticing all the real health benefits and the mental benefits as well. People talk about becoming a lot more creative, for instance. I don't know if you found that, but, you know, it makes your... It feels like it makes your synapses fire. I think what I noticed is just the time that I got back. Like, Mm. another kind wouldn't exist if I was still having the old glass of wine, without a doubt, because... You know, I'd be hungover or now in the evenings, like Guy and I, instead of going out for long dinners, and you talk about this in the book, we'll tend to go and do something interesting together, like a talk or, you know, our world's really opened up. And that, I think, gave me the confidence and the space to start my passion project, which is... Yeah, and so many people find that. They give up drinking and they rediscover old passions. Yes. And what I found, and again, a lot of other people say the same thing, is you sort of rediscover who you used to be and there were things that I used to do as a teenager like writing for instance that just went on the back burner you know when I first gave up I looked back at a picture of myself when I was much younger and I thought oh god I was so energetic and enthusiastic and driven and and I've refound that it can really change your life. I think that's a really nice exercise that you talk about in the book as well as looking at that photograph. Yeah, and think what would I wanted for that child and is that what I'm doing? And then, you know, the other big driver for me, of course, was my own children. Yeah, so this is a big question. How has your experience of motherhood changed since you've been sober? You know what? I thought alcohol was a really crucial part of motherhood, to be honest. And I would get to the end of the day and I felt that glass of wine was me time. That was, you know, wine o'clock. It was, I deserved it after a day running around after three children. And people who do that, I completely understand. I did it for years. I felt like it really helped. The problem is that when that one glass becomes two glasses, becomes three glasses, it stops helping you and it starts actually making life a lot harder and I found that 
it was ruining my experience of motherhood by the end. So, for instance, those wonderful bedtime story moments that your children will remember forever, I rushed through them so fast because I wanted to get downstairs and pour a glass of wine. So I'd skip over four pages of the Gruffalo at a time. And I know we've probably all done that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like, what big bad mouse? No. <laughs> They're like, the end doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, and I was grumpy a lot of the time. I wasn't very patient, you know, particularly in the mornings. If I had a Sunday morning, the children wanted to wake me up at six o'clock. I was not at all happy. And there are a number of things that... I might have taken them to that I didn't because I was hungover. I spent a lot of time feeling guilty about a lot of that. And now I don't drink. I feel like I'm so much more on their level. I'm much more patient. I'm much more present. And I'm a better example for them, I think, as well, because they were so used to seeing me constantly with a glass of wine in my hand. They would have grown up thinking that that's what adults need to do in order to relax. And they would have ended up in the same position that I found myself in and I don't want them to see alcohol as something that all adults have to drink in order to be happy. Yeah. And have they changed since you've become, as you say, sort of more present on a level? Have you noticed a change in their behaviour? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because children change all the time. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, it's, it's, <laughs> so it's difficult to know. But I know they're really proud of me for having written the book and they don't mind the fact that I, I, I tell stories about them and what they get up to. They've forgiven me for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're more secure and more relaxed because... I think the problem when you have a parent who drinks the way that I did, you sort of never quite know what mood they're going to be in. You know, they didn't know whether I was going to be happy, exuberant mummy or whether I was going to be cross, tetchy, grumpy mummy. And now they don't have that worry. They know that I'm always me. I read something, a story the other day that somebody sent me and it really broke my heart because I think my children must have thought this too. There was... Uh, a child, her mother was making jokes about how she was going to have to get lots of wine in because her daughter was having a sleepover and it was the only way she could cope with the sleepover was, you know, to have several glasses of wine. Yeah. And her daughter turned around to her and said, Mummy, do you really need wine in order to cope with me and my friends? And I thought, actually, my children must have thought that. They must have thought that I needed wine in it because I made so many jokes in front of them about, uh, you know, oh, thank God it's wine o'clock. And, and, well, it's, you know. the thing is, is it's really socially acceptable to do that, isn't yeah. it? It's like a big thing. You know, when I became a mum, part of the reason I started Motherkind, to be honest, is I just couldn't believe what a big thing that whole drinking mum's sort of movement was in a way yeah, you know and number I, one I selling books to make you feel normal well, this is, yeah exactly <laughs> but that's sort of the problem in that it does mean that people often like me don't realize they have a problem because they assume everybody else is doing the same thing and actually it may well be that everybody else was only having one glass of wine and it was only me having a bottle but because of all the wine o'clock jokes I thought oh this is normal and, you know, and I don't want to stop because I think, you know, we're really funny and we need to be able to wind down. We need to be able to relax. We need to be able to support each other and we need to have a laugh. So, you know, I don't want to be judgmental about all of that stuff. But it, for me, it got out of control. I think that's a really important message, isn't it? It's that it's that line that we've been talking about between mm. when is this genuinely a glass of wine to relax at the end of the day, which, you know, can be an act of self-care. Yeah. You know, and when is it self-sabotage? And exactly. I think that line... 
if you can manage to just have one glass at the end of the day, then there is no harm in that. And, you know, I applaud you, although, I mean, there's a bit of me that feels immensely jealous. <laughs> because I was just never that sort of person. And, I mean, I talk about how there are two different types of people. There's people who are good at moderating naturally, and there are people who are all-or-nothing types. And I'm very much an all-or-nothing type. And I was like that with wine. I'm still the same with crisps. With work? Because you were very successful Um, very young. Yeah, I I can get like that about anything, to be honest. And I know that about myself, so now I have to be careful. I should never do online bingo. (laughs) No, I would would advise against that. (laughs) So, and I think if you are that sort of person, then wine o'clock can easily get out of control. But if you're the sort of person who's able to do it moderately, then that is not a problem Mm. and you shouldn't feel guilty about it. So what would you say to a mum who's listening and has sort of got that uncomfortable feeling maybe in her chest or her stomach about how much she's drinking at wine o'clock? What would you say to her? Where does she start? Where could she go? The first thing I would say is you are not alone. So three years ago when I was in that state... I heard somebody on the radio, I think it was probably Woman's Hour or something like that, talking about their problem with alcohol. And for me, it was a light bulb moment. And I thought, oh my God, it's not just me. And that is a really powerful feeling. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you are thinking, oh, I'm not sure what to do. First thing to know is you are not alone. There are hundreds of thousands of people like you out there. Millions. Yeah, alcohol is an addictive drug. And and as a result, a whole load of people become addicted. And there is no shame in that. And that's the second thing to know. Do not be ashamed. This is not your fault. Then the third thing to know is that there is so much help available. And there's AA, obviously. And I chose not to do AA because partly because I was too scared. But now there are so many alternatives as well, particularly online. So I would recommend Club Soda, which is a Facebook group, which is amazing. Soberistas.com, which is another group for people who um, want to give up drinking. And there's my blog, Mummy Was a Secret Drinker. Or read my book, The Sober Diaries, if you are interested in how I've managed to kick the drink and what happened next. Because I think actually reading other people's stories is really helpful. Plus there's another book which I always recommend to people, which is Jason Vale's book. And I found that really, really helpful too. So there is loads of help out there. So don't be scared. I love that you said you're not alone. And that's really what AA and and all the online groups that you're Mm. talking about, why they're so powerful. It's just that connection. And I think the shame, and there's a saying in AA, isn't it? Our secrets keep us sick. Yeah. And I think the shame binds us often to our addictions because it keeps them secret and it keeps us not wanting to share them with others. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the big differences for me, the reason why I was able to quit this time when I tried previously and hadn't worked is, is mindset. Because if you go into it feeling scared and you worry that you're going to be deprived the rest of your life, it's really difficult because it's like being on a constant diet and constantly having to monitor and sort of feeling like you're missing out. And the way to do it is to be excited and to think about all the things you're going to gain and how much your life will transform. And if you can do that, then it's easy. Yeah, they talk about that a lot, don't they, in thinking about what you can get rather than what you're giving giving up up. exactly so I know a lot of people use that with smoking don't they it's difficult to see that when you're right in it but you know once you're out the other side you realize you've lost nothing and you've gained everything 
Yeah. So what's next for you? Are you on a mission to get this sober message out there? You know what? What's so ironic is I spent a year blogging anonymously. So I called myself Sober Mummy and I was petrified about being outed or being found out. And I didn't tell anyone I quit drinking. I said that I was driving or on antibiotics. Mm. or. And then after the whole cancer thing, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the cancer thing made me think, fuck it. You know, because it made me realise that life is too short to hide in and to not make a difference. Mm. And I thought if I come out and tell my story, then... It might help other people in the same boat that I was in. So, as I said, I wrote the book and now I'm on a mission. So I did a TED talk last weekend. I know, I saw yeah. that. Congratulations. So on YouTube soon. And I'm on a mission to basically try and inspire anyone who is in the same position that I was in to see that life without alcohol actually can be pretty amazing. And I just want to get rid of all that shame and all the stigma around alcohol addiction and just try and encourage people to see what I call alcohol free as being a completely brilliant lifestyle choice. Yeah and you talk about in the book about some people talk about being grateful don't they for you know all that they've gone through and I Mm. think in the book you said I'm not quite there yet. Are you there now? Do you feel grateful? I don't regret anything. You don't want to go through your life regretting all the stuff you've done in the past. A lot of it was great fun at the time. The way I try and think about it is is I sort of feel like everyone has a lifetime supply of booze that their body is able to handle. And I just drank mine all very quickly. (laughs) And now I can't drink it anymore. So it doesn't make me feel like I'm missing out. I feel like I've just been there, done that. And now I'm doing life a different way. And in terms of feeling grateful, I feel like having been through not just the quitting drink, but the the experience of cancer Mm. as well, has made me much wiser. It's made me much more accepting of other people, much less judgmental of other people. I sort of realise now that everyone has their shit, you know, everyone has the stuff they're dealing with. Mm. And we don't know what goes on behind other people's Instagram feeds. And it's made me a much better mum. I'm getting to the point where I'm feeling grateful. (laughs) (laughs) And on the point around, you know, you said just then being a better mum, has it changed the values that you're bringing into parenting? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think it has in that I always like being fun mum. And I'm still fun mum, but I also try more now to talk to my kids about the stuff that matters. Which is? Which is things like kindness and, you know, how you treat your friends and to try and put themselves in other people's heads. So if somebody's being mean to them, you know, I talk to them about think what they might be going through and mm. this might be because they have issues that, you know, they're dealing with. And, you know, the sorts of things that I've learned, I try and encourage them to start to think that way too. And I'm not sure I ever had those sorts of conversations with them back in the drinking days. Mm-hmm. It was much more about sort of either being fun or being grumpy and nothing much in between. <laughs> what about feelings? Because, you know, I think it's pretty well known that a lot of people struggle with addiction when we're trying to block our yeah, feelings. Yeah. You, have you noticed that's changed that emotional landscape within you and how that's relating then to your children's feelings? Yeah, it does. And, and I, I think we do absolutely drink to block feelings. And I've realised now that... For instance, one of my big things was learning to deal with fear. Mm. And, you know, I used to avoid fear. And I would, at the moment I felt the tiny bit anxious, I'd have a drink. And what I've learned through this last couple of years is that 
the very best things are on the other side of our greatest fears. And actually, that feeling of fear means you're about to do something life-changing. And I've tried to teach my children that too. Don't avoid fear. Don't avoid crying. When I was going through the cancer thing, I would cry and swear on my own, never in front of the children. But it was a great release valve. And I'm trying to teach the children that, you know, crying is, is a beneficial feeling all those things is part of life mm-hmm. and if you're not feeling that stuff you're not living and that sort of I think we all need to learn that I mean fear I totally agree and I I didn't know that I had to learn that in my 20s through my own recovery mm. that I've learned that fear gets greatest as I get closest to what I'm most meant to be yeah, doing exactly. but no one told me that exactly. so I was no, always just <laughs> running away from and it and it is our natural instinct to run away from fear But actually, when you realise that fear and anxiety, you know, anxiety is our friend. Anxiety is that feeling of your heart beating faster and your breathing getting more sort of urgent is because your body is readying yourself to do something important. And once you realise that, the anxiety isn't so scary anymore. You think, okay, this is me gearing up to do something Mm. proper. Mm. It certainly has something to teach us always. Because I know sometimes anxiety can come up in me when I've not dealt with something properly. Mm, mm. You know, I it's think like a warning signal. It's an yeah, early warning yeah. signal. And I think that's what's so fascinating about any type of addiction is it's a crossroads, isn't it? Do I numb this? And mm. for me, I noticed it as picking up my phone. I noticed I've been getting some, you know, fluttery feelings. Like, I reach for my phone. Yeah, and so I'm that's a, my new addiction. I'm aware <laughs> of it. And I spotted myself doing it last night. I thought, God, this is so interesting to watch myself do this what am I avoiding so I did loads of journaling this morning because that's my tool like you I write things out but I just think it's fascinating that what lucky kids that you're teaching them that now oh I'm I'm a pretty terrible mother (laughs) (laughs) take the compliment (laughs) but thank you (laughs) I think that's a problem with parenting isn't it you know you're never as good as you want to be (laughs) Mm. Mm, yeah, I think it's embracing the imperfection of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what's next for you? Book two? I think I've done enough of plundering my own life and my children's lives for writing. So I want to write um, fiction now. So I'm going to write a novel. Wow. My, my next thing. And I'm going to carry on blogging and, and everything. I've got a, a Sober Mummy Facebook page as well, which I post on every day, sort of information and inspiration. Is that the best way for people to come and find um, you? Oh, or Instagram. Instagram. So depending on what you do. So I'm Claire underscore Pooley on Instagram and I'm Sober Mummy on Facebook. And the book, of so, course, which is, you know, I highly so recommend it. Anyone who doesn't drink or does drink. Yeah, I mean, actually, great. all of it is about the ups and downs of motherhood and about how we deal with that. And, yeah, even if you don't have a problem with alcohol, it might make you think about just how you deal with life. It's a book about life. That's so, what, you yeah. know, when I finished it, that was really my sense. From really searing honesty, and I really appreciated well, that. I, I think the thing about it is that, I wrote it at the time. So if I was to write it now with the benefit of hindsight, it would be a very different book. But it's based on those diary entries that I wrote at the time. So the bit where I found the lump in my boot, Mm. for instance, what's in the book is what I wrote on that very day. So as a result, it's quite raw but hopefully made bearable by the fact that it's quite funny too. Well, I was going to say, it's like my favourite type of book is where I laugh and cry in the same chapter, and yours definitely had that. (laughs) And I ask everyone the same question. 
at the end of every podcast I do this quite a big question, which is if you could gift all the mums out there one thing in the world, what would it be and why? Gosh, that's uh, it's, it's a really difficult one to answer. But I think for me, it's it comes back to what we were saying about fear. And if I could encourage everyone to, it's an expression you might have come across, but to believe that outside your comfort zone is where the magic happens. And I think we spend the whole time trying to be perfect and trying to do everything brilliantly. And actually, we should spend more time taking risks and teaching our children to take risks. So that's what I would gift, is the ability to feel the fear and do it anyway. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for having me. It's been such fun. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please check out my Instagram where we continue the conversation and I post daily about all things motherhood and well-being. Also, if you haven't already, have a look at my website because I've been writing more and more blogs and I'm also putting on there all the events and talks that I'm giving. And of course, if you haven't, then please do have a listen to some of the other episodes because I'm chatting to some really incredible women that I'd love you to enjoy. And if you did enjoy it, then please, please leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. So thank you very much. Mm